When we look to the method of parabolic teaching that Jesus did when Jesus walked on this earth before he was crucified, we find that there was many reasons why or many different circumstances or settings that Jesus chose the method of parabolic teaching. For example, this morning Shahe was talking about the kingdom and how Jesus spoke to his disciples concerning various aspects of the kingdom. For example, in the, in the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, we find that Jesus taught his disciples about the kingdom in parables. Also, we can go back to the last week of the life of Jesus, for example. We can look to the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew on a very significant day, and that was the day that all of those enemies of Jesus were more bold than they had ever been in any day prior to that time. And you remember that those enemies confronted Jesus and they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do the things that you do, and who gave you that authority? And Jesus responded to them, and then he gave them the parable of the two sons. But there were casual settings that Jesus taught in parables as well. For example, one time in a Pharisee's home, you remember that Jesus was there, and a woman that was known, and I don't know what it was that she was guilty of in her life, because the Bible says that anything really that goes against the teachings that's found in the Word of God is a sin, and we don't have degrees of sin. Even though today people try to categorize or classify sins as great or small or somewhere in between. All we know is there was a woman, and that woman was known in society as a sinner, whatever it was that she was guilty of. And you remember that as Jesus was there in the house of that Pharisee, this woman enters the scene with an alabaster box, and she falls down at the back of the feet of Jesus, and she, while weeping with tears that flowed so much so that she washed the feet of Jesus with those tears, and she took her own hair, and she wiped his feet, and she kissed his feet, and she anointed his feet as well. You remember when the Pharisee was thinking among himself or speaking to himself, he said, truly this cannot be a prophet because if Jesus was a prophet, he would know the character of the woman that is at his feet. What did Jesus do? He gave a perfect sermon, the parable of the two debtors. What was he illustrating? He was illustrating that those that are forgiven much love much. Another time, a lawyer's question was asked to Jesus. You remember that Jesus was asked by this lawyer. He said, Master, meaning teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, What saith the law, and how readest thou? And that lawyer said that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said, Thou sayest well. He said, Thus do, and thou shalt live. But of all the points of clarification this man asks, he asks, Who is my neighbor? Jesus responded with a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember this time when Jesus settled a family dispute? 
Now think about it by way of context. Jesus is preaching maybe some of his most powerful, significant sermons. He's preaching about the deity of Christ. I talked about that a little bit this morning. He was preaching about Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. He was preaching about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He was talking about heaven. He was talking about hell. Oh, these are great subjects that anyone you would think would like to hear and sit at the feet of the Master while he preached in those days. But there was a man that come on the scene, a young man, and he said, as he interrupts Jesus during these great sermons, and he says, wait a minute now, would you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? And Jesus said, man, I am not a judge. Who made me a judge or a divider over you and such matters like that? And Jesus warned the man, he said, beware of covetousness because the mark of a man, as I paraphrase, or a man's life is not determined by the abundance of the things that he possesses. And then Jesus gave the masterful sermon about the rich fool. But today we're going to talk about something that happened in the house of a ruler of a Pharisee. You know, I studied various scholars along this line, and Mr. Bowles said this about, those, about this man being a ruler or a chief among the Pharisees. Some say that he was perhaps one of the great men in the Sanhedrin. Some say that he was chief or ruler over certain aspects of being a, a Jew. I don't know, and, and really what he said is it's impossible to know to what extent this man was a chief man or this man was a ruler. All we know is this was an educated man and this was a man of some importance in his life. This man no doubt had heard of the fame of Jesus. He had heard about the reputation of Jesus. He had heard that Jesus was one who could heal those that were sick. And so one day on the Sabbath day, he invites Jesus over to his house to eat bread. Then the Bible says there was a certain Man, You know, there's a whole sermon in that phrase. You know, when it says that there was a certain man that was brought there, and this man was afflicted with the affliction of the dropsy. One scholar said that when it says a certain man, it's talking about something that perhaps this man was invited deliberately for the purpose of testing Jesus. This didn't just happen by happenstance. This man, this chief among the Pharisees, this ruler of the Pharisees, this man invites Jesus over to his house on the Sabbath day and also invites a man that was afflicted with a horrible condition as the King James Version renders it the dropsy. First of all, what's the dropsy? Maybe you've always known what dropsy was. I did not. I didn't always know what the dropsy was. I'll tell you what I've read, though. It was something that was a condition that involved retaining water under the skin. In other words, in various parts of the body, the body would retain water. And one scholar said it'd be kind of like congestive heart failure. In other words, the dropsy or this blowing up of uh, your body in water was really, it was really the outcome of another disease. In other words, it wasn't curable either. 
You know, I've known people that have had congestive heart failure, and, and I'm sure you've known folks like that too, where their legs swelled up. My father had that. His legs would swell up, I mean, really, really big. I've seen some other folks that had blown up so much that the, it actually the water came out the skin. This was a horrible condition. It was very painful. And you can just imagine the heart of this Pharisee as he brings this man before Jesus not because he wanted Jesus to have pity on the man, to heal the man. Not because he cared at all. Because he wanted to test Jesus on the Sabbath day. Jesus living under the old law as a Jew, he wanted to find out what's Jesus really going to do. In other words, if Jesus would look upon this man and he would walk in and heal this man, then they would say, now wait a minute, do you really think that it's lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath day? After all, if you're going to heal someone, you're going to perform some act of work and that's not to be done on the Sabbath day. They also had phase two, I would say, or here's plan B. If Jesus came on the scene and looked at this man and didn't heal the man, they can accuse him of being fearful of the people. And secondly, they can accuse him of not being compassionate. They can accuse him of not being understanding. They can accuse him of not being loving. And of all things, if he really had the ability to heal the man, he was holding back and deliberately not doing it. You know what's amazing to me? What's amazing to me is the one that walked the face of this earth for about 33 years, that lived his life in perfect, sinless perfection, he knows their hearts, he examines their intentions, and he knows exactly why he is there. You know what Jesus does? He doesn't heal the man right away. In fact, Jesus is going to ask the question first. He says, let me ask you, do you really think that it's lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath day? And the Bible says they could answer not a word. You know what I thought about? The first thing that popped into my mind of another instance where Jesus was preaching a sermon of where there were those that could not answer a question. Now, we talked about the day of controversy. You remember when they were challenging Jesus? You remember when Jesus says, I will answer your question if you'll answer one of mine. The baptism of John, was it of God or of man? And the Bible says that they reasoned one with the other and they deduced, wait a minute, it's a lose-lose proposition because if we say that it's of God, then he's going to say, why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you listen to him? And number two, if we say it's of man, he said many, they feared the people because many considered John to be a prophet. So they said, we do not know. But there was another time too. You remember when Jesus gave the parable of the, of the wedding feast? When Jesus talked about that wedding ceremony? What about the guy that comes in to the wedding ceremony and he comes and sits down at the table without a proper wedding garment on? You remember when the king comes out, the marriage of the king's son, and when the king comes out, he says, why aren't you wearing your wedding garment? And the Bible says that the man just stood there and said nothing. Somebody said one time, it's kind of like penguins. They just look. They just stare kind of picture it like that and on this occasion this was a man these these were individuals when Jesus asked them the question they said not a word we can just picture as they stared back maybe with their mouths open they weren't expecting Jesus 
to say what he said. Then the Bible says that Jesus heals the man. Now, along the line, to show their inconsistency, after Jesus healed the man, he says, which one of you shall have an ass or an ox fall into the ditch on the Sabbath day and straightway would not go down and pull him out of the ditch? What he was saying was this. You're being extremely inconsistent here. In the 12th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus dealt with a very similar thing. In fact, the language is a little different there, but it's very similar. And Jesus talks about a man that has one sheep, a sheep, and the sheep falls into the pit or falls into the ditch. Jesus says, you know good and well, you're going to go and, and pull that animal out of the pit on the Sabbath day. Now, what's Jesus' point? His point was they were accusing him, if he would heal this man on the Sabbath day, of performing an act of work, thus breaking the Old Testament law. Jesus says, by way of your inconsistency, I know that you, if one of your prize animals would fall into the ditch, would go and bring him out, you wouldn't wait until the Sabbath day was over and then go and get him. What was his point? His point was, number one, you are placing the value, you're placing the value on an animal more than the value of a human being. You want to talk about being hit right in the face with it. You are placing the value of an animal knowing that if you go down to bring an animal out of the pit, it's going to take a whole lot of work. And not only that, chances are you're going to have to go get your neighbors, you're going to have to get several people, and you're going to have to all collectively work together to get the animal out of the pit, out of the ditch, whatever it is. Completely inconsistent. The Bible says they could not answer to that question either. But you know, little did they know, Jesus was brought there, and Jesus knew this. He was brought there for the purpose of being examined by the Pharisees. He was being examined by these individuals that day. Little did they know, though, when Jesus got there, he began to watch them, and he began to examine them as well. And as he noted, he noticed that there were those that were invited that were selecting the very best places to sit. You know what's interesting? McGarvey says about the tables and so forth that were chosen or used at that time, the Grecian tables. He says this, McGarvey said the Grecian table then in use had three sections which were placed together so as to form a flat-bottomed U. The space enclosed by the table was not occupied. It was left vacant so that the servants might enter it and attend to the wants of the guests who reclined around the outer margin of the table. Now, on the outside, within all three sections, was a place of honor. What did Jesus notice? He noticed that as he came there that day on that particular social gathering, there were those among the sect of the Pharisees that were trying to have the very best place to sit. Have you ever done that? Get there early so you can have a good seat? Friday night, Tina and I and the kids went to a high school football game. And I got to tell you, it would have been great if we got there earlier to have a better seat. I didn't even get one at all. 
In fact, they got a place to sit, and I'm standing on the rail on the steps. That would have been a perfect indication or a perfect time when I needed to get there earlier so that I can get a seat. That's not what I'm talking about. Because when, talk, when I'm talking about a high school football game, I'm talking about a place that you can go sit anywhere you want to. And when you get there first, it's not a place of honor. It's first come, first serve. You find a seat, you get there early, and that's your seat. Good for you. But Jesus was talking about something else. He was talking about something that was an invitation. He was talking about that in the invitation, there would be honored guests that would be bidden to come to. And those honored guests that were bidden would have places of honor and special places that they might sit in. You know what Jesus recognized, though? He recognized that there was people from whatever walk of life that were showing up there that day that were all trying with petty positioning to find the best place of honor that they might sit there. And Jesus saw them, and Jesus responded in this way, this petty positioning. The setting, he gives a parable now, the setting is a wedding feast. And the Bible says or talks about the, the, the common social event of a wedding feast. In fact, uh, I think I read one time when Jesus referred to a wedding at least eight times in the New Testament. A time or a place of happiness, fellowship, joy, good times, a social setting. Places where people of honor would be bidden to come. Jesus says, well, there's this thing called a wedding feast. And he warns when you get bidden to a place like that, don't sit down in the best of places. He says, don't do that. Now, this was an invitation-only event. You know what Jesus says the reason for it is? He said the reason for it is if you go and you choose the very best seat, and you sit in a place of honor, then all of a sudden people are going to be coming in. What are they going to do? You're sitting in the very best seat. So the next guy comes in and just maybe with petty positioning, he chooses the next best right next to you. And then the next best and the best after that. Incidentally, these tables, these chairs, they weren't chairs like we have around tables. They were, as uh, one scholar said, that he referred to them simply as couches. They reclined around the outer per perimeter of this three-section table. The inside was left open for the servants to come and serve all the guests. What's going to happen, Jesus says? Jesus says what's going to happen is that people are going to come in and all of those seats are going to fill up. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be a fellow that arrives at that setting that was the, the, the honored guest. And that man's going to come in and the man that invited you. And they're both going to walk up to you and say, excuse me, Frank, could you please get out of that seat? That seat is not for you. That seat is for Bob Smith. What did Jesus say? He says, what are you going to do? You're going to get up. And with shame, you're going to walk away. And guess what? You've spent all this time in a seat that was not yours to have. So by the time that all of this transpires, the only thing that is left is the lowest place. And you are going to, with shame, have to go and sit in the lowest place. Long time ago, I thought about the lowest place. Man, that's kind of like 
right field at Dodger Stadium behind the pole. That's kind of the worst seat in the house. You're, 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 you're now in the worst seat of all. It didn't have to be that way, but you went down and plopped down in somebody else's seat that was not yours, sold out crowd, filled up now. Now you got what's left over. Jesus makes the comparison. If you elevate yourself to the place or position of honor that is not for you to have, somebody else is going to come and somebody else is going to tell you to leave out of that place and you with shame are going to have to go limping off, as it were, to the lowest of all places and that's your seat. Jesus says in verse 10, But when thou art bidden... Go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. So what does he say? Don't sit in the high place. Don't put yourself or elevate yourself in that position, because what's going to happen, you're going to get asked to move. You're going to, with shame, go take the worst seat in the house. Now, what does he say to do? Go and walk in and take the lowest place. I want to make a point here. Mr. Bowles said something that I think was great. Reading it to this afternoon, I want to share it with you. He said, Jesus did not mean that you choose the lowest place. Look how humble I am. I'm just going to give up my seat. Look at me. Look at the humility that I possess. In fact, this is what he said. Mr. Bowles said that the height of arrogance is showing too much humility. I didn't say having too much humility. I said showing too much humility. Now we might think, I don't know anybody like that. When Jesus is talking about arrogance and he's talking about pride and he's talking about humility and he's talking about all of that, we don't know anybody like that. Well, I'll tell you something, folks, when we start thinking, when we start thinking and demonstrating to other people that we want other people to look at us and think, wow, they are really, they are really humble people. Or a person that all of a sudden thinks that they get something that nobody else has gotten. They, their discipleship means more to them than anybody else, that they get it now. And with tear-filled eyes, look at my humility all about us. How many times do we use this phrase, folks? There's no other way to put it. That is arrogant humility. And the height of arrogance is the over-demonstration of humility drawing attention to yourself. Jesus says, with the right heart, with the right perspective, with the right spirit, with the right attitude, no, I'm going to give that seat up to Bob. I'm going to give my seat up to Shahe. What's going to happen now? I'm sitting in the lowest seat. I was bidden to this place. I was bidden to come to this place. But the man that did the bidding, he shows up and says, wait a minute, Frank, you're in the wrong seat. No, come over here with me. How many times does that actually happen in life? You go and plop sit down somewhere, somewhere, and you kind of sit back, and you have humility, and you are humble in your heart, and you're not trying to take the best seat from somebody else. Somebody's going to say, hey, come sit with us. What does Jesus say? You're going to have worship with those that are there. It's going to be a good and happy occasion. And listen, 
What would you rather have happen? Would you rather have somebody say, you're in the wrong seat, Frank, get out of there and go find the lowest place and you have to walk in front of everybody with shame to do it? Or would you rather have yourself over here that you placed yourself in and somebody says, no, why don't you come over here with me and sit in the better seat and we're going to enjoy this outing. We're going to enjoy this function, this gathering. You know, Jesus concluded with a maxim. There was a maxim given. What is a maxim? A maxim by definition is, it's a fundamental principle. It is a general truth. It is a rule of conduct. A maxim is a fundamental principle, a general truth, or a rule of conduct. This is one of the Lord's favorites. What did he say? For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Jesus also dealt with this very thing when he talked about the Pharisee and the publican. We'll not go into that. But Jesus dealt with that very thing. He said that the publican, he was a man that was a sinner, was known to be an extortioner. And he, all he did is he can't even look up toward the heavens. He has so much humility in his heart that the Bible says that he smote his breast as an outward sign of inward anguish and sorrow and repentance. And all he can say is, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what Jesus said there? That's amazing. Remember the Pharisee and all the things that he says, oh, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, and blah, blah, all, or even as him. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said that one man went away justified. The other did not. The word justified means to have acquitted. That's like when you go into a court of law and you're on trial. If you're acquitted, you're acquitted of the crime. That publican was acquitted of his sinful crime. The other man, he went away with all of his wonderful attributes, but he also took something else with him too. He took his sins with him. Jesus said it there again about humbling ourselves or exalting ourselves. It was spoken when Jesus was teaching his disciples not to be like the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. It is also found in the Old Testament scriptures as well. In Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 12, the Bible says, Before destruction the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. In Proverbs 29 and 23, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. It was also repeated in the New Testament in James chapter 4 and verse 6, where it says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Well, lastly, let's apply the parable. You know, there's an application to every single parable, every single sermon that Jesus ever preached. And if we miss the application, we miss the whole meaning of the entire sermon. Here's the application. We learn, number one, the dangers of pride. How many times have we heard Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 quoted like this? Pride goeth before a fall. Well, that's a true statement, but that's not what the Bible says. It says something that's even words that are harsh, more harsh than that. 
more severe than that, more strict than that. It doesn't say pride goes before fall. It says pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now you think about it. I don't know what you think about when you think about destruction, but I think blown up. I think destroyed. I think ruined. I think completely obliterated. Pride goes before destruction, it says, and a haughty spirit before a fall. The danger of pride is not just in social settings either, as per the parable, but especially in our relationships with God. The Lord hates pride. Proverbs 8 and 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. There are things that God hates. He hates pride. He hates it when brethren sow discord among brethren. He hates lying tongues. There's many things that the Lord hates. And we talk about God. We're talking about a being that it's impossible for him to lie. It's impossible for him to sin. And when you and I have hate, we need to be careful. That's a different kind of hate. We have hate that's different than God. We're not on the same plane or level with God. But God hates Pride. We also find that Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 32, on the great Sermon on the Mount, that this pride will defile a man. Jesus said, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Folks, we must always remember 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says that pride is not of the Father, but pride is of the world. Secondly, we learn that from this parable the flip side of all this, and that is the importance of humility. People don't say that today. People say you've got to take care of number one. People say in society, if you don't take care of yourself... And if you don't support yourself, who's going to do it? Now, I don't believe for one minute that we need to walk around in life with no confidence whatsoever. I don't think that's a biblical principle at all. And when the Bible talks about lowering ourselves and submitting to somebody else, it's not saying that we are floor mats, we throw ourselves down on the ground, beat ourselves up, and hate ourselves. That's a sin, by the way, to hate yourself. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that you have to have no confidence whatsoever in yourself. What it says is, is that humility is what we need to try to achieve in our life as opposed to pride. And when it talks about preferring one another, it doesn't mean that I want to hang out with Terry, which I do. It doesn't mean I'd rather hang out with Terry than somebody else. It means if I prefer Terry, I am putting Terry before me. And that's exactly what Jesus talked about in this parable. Put yourself aside. Step aside. Step out of the equation. Put somebody else first. Always be like that in your dealings with your brethren, with your fellow man. The Lord blesses those that are humble. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, the Bible says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. Humility also is a mark of wisdom. 
Now, I know that goes against the grain of today. But humility is a mark of wisdom. Now, that doesn't mean that's not false humility. That's not, look, I'm really, I really, I'm really wise, really humble. No, sincere humility is the mark of wisdom. I don't know about you folks, but I'll tell you this. Every single time in my life that I thought that I had all the wisdom that I needed, that I thought on a particular subject, whatever that is, any time that I thought that I had any particular subject all figured out, that I had come just as far as I could go along that line, I don't know about you, maybe that's not the case in your life, but every single time when I had that mentality and that attitude, life just slammed me right back to the ground, and I came to the realization I didn't know half of what I thought I knew. When we think that we've got it all figured out, whether it's in anything in life, life has a way of slamming us right back down to the ground and putting our feet back on the ground. Life does that. But never, ever let it be that we allow that kind of a heart or an attitude or a spirit enter us when we talk about our Christianity, especially when we think we've got it figured out more than somebody else. Because I'm going to tell you something, folks. There's a whole lot of babes in Christ. And if it's true that a person has to be a member of the Lord's church for 25, 30 years before they get it, and they get it now and they didn't get it before, that means no babe in Christ can go to heaven. No babe in Christ can be a disciple of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that goes against the grain and the teachings that are found in the New Testament. Every babe in Christ that is following this pattern to the best of their ability, all the way up to someone that can endure strong meat, meat of the word, to the very best of their ability, they get it. They understand it. And they're trying to serve God. But I'm going to tell you something. You never graduate, ever. You never do. There is no diploma there is in heaven. That's it. If there's a diploma or a degree to be given, it's the reward that we will all have that none of us will ever earn. But it's the reward that we will all have on that last and final day when Jesus says, this one was mine. When, I, when we hear the wonderful words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of thy Lord and forever be with the Lord, that's graduation day. If anything in the world, that's it. That's the ceremony. Because, folks, if we ever think that we just reach a point in this life when we've got it all dialed in, that's the height of arrogance. And, man, we got so much more to learn. If nothing else about humility that Jesus spoke about a long time ago. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.